listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. i got to tell you something, people. The gentleman on my show today is in a band I love, and I actually saw them in Philadelphia before he joined them. They were opening up for uh, Scorpions and Ted Nugent, and I went to school the next day. I think I was a junior in high school, and I, I couldn't freaking hear. I, my, I, my ears were ringing, and he's just an amazing guitarist. He's, as I said, I love the band. He's a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he's like a real fitness buff, which I want to talk to him about. And my guest from Def Leppard is Phil Collin. How you doing, Phil? Great, Steve. How are you? I, I was flipping around. I always do my research. And I saw the 30-day fitness challenge you do. Tell me right. about that. Tell Because that's, you don't think, you know, and it makes sense because, you know, you're the guy on the stage without a shirt, and, you know, you don't want to see a flabby guy playing a guitar solo. What, uh, how long have you been into fitness? Um, actually, I stopped drinking, like, 30, was it, 34, 87, I, I stopped drinking, and after that, I found I had extra hours in the day, uh, and that's really when I started working, I started running. I don't really like running, but right then, I all this time and energy. So I, I started doing this thing and that developed into other things, martial arts and weights and, and everything. And it, it just become a thing. And then it became a, a, a daily part of the routine and still less time than I used to recover from being drunk. So it was, um, yeah, it, it was just a, a normal part of every day. Now, why did you decide to stop drinking? I mean, a lot of the time, because, you know, you were in a band of the 80s. I mean, I'm an 80s guy. You know, the Def Leppard, pour some sugar on me, the strippers, you know, all that stuff. I was what, sober by that point, by the way, but yeah. <laughs> what made you decide? Was there was there a one definitive moment or was it a, a collection of moments? A, a collection of, of one definitive moment. <laughs> it, it was uh, me and Steve Clark, who, who was my best friend and also you know, the other guitar player in the band. Um, we were drinking buddies, so we used to get hammered and you know our first tour was pyromania tour we went from playing well the first show show of the tour was the marquee club in london which is about 500 people and we within nine months we we played jack murphy stadium which is fifty-five thousand people in, in in san diego and uh, that thing you know we'd been working very hard obviously for years and years but it, it still seemed very overnight it was it was crazy and and MTV was just happening, so you'd, you'd get people just wreck it, like in the streets, you'd get mobbed. Not everywhere, only where they had cable TV, funny enough. Um, and, and we were in our you know, early 20s, so it, there was all this stuff, and there's girls everywhere and, and, and whatever, so it was crazy. So you're drinking and doing everything, and uh, at the end of it, you go, wow, this, this is a little extreme. You know, I'd, I'd wake up and not know where I was, and, and I started blacking out, and then I had a few moments there was one time in dublin we were recording and um i woke up and i'd borrowed joe's car I'd, we didn't even know about any of this and um we'd bought rolex watches had an ear pierced completely someone had to fill us in on it and i was like oh my god and and started blacking this happens like you know blind drunk and all that and so um that that's that was the first one and then i i, I tried a few other like social drinking for a while and that didn't really work for me. So I went cold turkey. Um, my my girlfriend at the time, Liz, uh, it was her birthday. We were in Paris. I used to have a place in Paris. And the next day we were going to India. And I said, okay, your birthday is the last drink I'm going to have. And that, that was it. That was that was it. So, um, And then it was it was easier after, after that, after I did it cold turkey and, and didn't try and do little bits here and there, you know. Well, it's weird, you know, we talk about cold turkey. Me, I, I was in the hospital eight and a half years ago, and I, when I got out, I had a heart thing. I stopped smoking completely. And people were like, how'd you do it? And I said, because, like you said, you know what? You're missing a lot. I mean, I'm sitting there going, I could die. And I'm like, it's a cigarette, which stinks, and my friend never told me it stinks, is something that, you know, my, life, my life's not worth it. And that's what's, that you made the choice. Now, was it, was it hard, though, because you, when you were on tour, because you are around it constantly? Uh, no, actually, when I made that decision, it was actually easy. Um, w when I was kind of flirting with the idea, and I go, oh, yeah, I'll have a glass of wine. With, with it. That didn't work. It would be like I'd be drinking Jack Daniels by the end of the week, you know, or finish the bottle off. You know, it wouldn't be just a, a glass on. I, I couldn't be trusted with it. I couldn't trust myself with it. So when I actually, the, the whole psychological thing that goes along with it, obviously, you know, so you, you kind of weigh up the pros and the cons, and it's like, 
wow, this this actually has, isn't that great. And what it does to me is, is kind of um, isn't a benefit at all. It's actually a, a detriment. So there was all these other things coming into it, and the, and the, when everyone was drinking around me, it was it, I didn't even didn't even bother me. I didn't go. Oh my god, I'd really like that, you know. Now, were you, were you one of the drinkers that, when you drank, could perform on stage? Or were you one, I know a lot of performers who wait till they're done. What was your pattern? Or were you just going on stage hungover? I mean, it's still a... Well, I think a lot of guys think they're doing great on stage, but they're actually not. They're, they're like, you know, messing up. But I think one, and this is the God's honest truth, it sounds like a commercial, I think, but when people pay all that money to go and see, so I'd be so pissed off if my idol went up there and was falling all over the place and... Yeah, and it was and it was horrible and because I've seen guys who I, I really respect singers or, or guitar players or bands or whatever and, and you you feel really rip, ripped off let down and all of that stuff and I didn't want to be that guy as well but when I'd made the decision it actually become easier for me you know I, I, that it's, it's different for everyone obviously you know and I didn't have to do uh, AA or anything like that I just was like Ur. now when did you you start playing guitar a little bit later in life right yeah so, 16 so, late yeah so what when you were younger though you know what were your musical what were your musical influences who were you listening to when you were in those formative ages and then why did you end up picking a guitar up um i i'm from london so you 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 listen everything it was the center of the universe you know it used to be the center of, of world civilization all of that stuff and everything would come through london so you you know you you grew up and you know, the Who were just down the road and, and the Stones. Not that I'd see them, you know, but the, the, in, geographically they were really kind of close. And the, the Kinks and all these, you know, Rod Stewart, Stevie Marriott, Peter Green, you know, walking distance, not a long walk from, from where I grew up. And so there was this deep heritage there that was just part of the thing. And then you, I was really into, you know, whatever was happening, like Motown. I loved Motown. Um during the, the 60s, you know, there was a lot of immigrants come over from um, Jamaica, Pakistan, India and stuff like that. So there was this real melting pot of uh, cultural stuff like reggae. You just hear it all the time. Really cool reggae, you know, that blasting out big speakers and stuff. So I liked everything. And it, it kind of that was really cool. And then my cousin got me into rock. You know, I was like, I, I discovered David Bowie. But then he said, yeah, but check this out. And it was Zeppelin, Purple, Hendrix, Pink Floyd, and, and it's like, oh, my, this is great. But I liked everything, you know. I like really cheesy pop music. I like the, the Bowie T Rex thing, and I loved, you know, Deep Purple. My first concert was was Deep Purple, and uh, that's why I started playing guitar. I was fourteen, saw Richie Blackmore front row. He's smashing this strat up. He's playing this stuff, and I'm like, oh my god, that's what I want to do. So, so that was it, really. So you know, and once again, sixteen is sort of a is it later stage in life to start when you were 16 when you got that first guitar was your goal to become a, a rock and roll musician or was it something that you were getting it to say i want to see if i could actually get good at this thing no and ironically i could kind of play straight straight away which was kind of weird i i, I mean i couldn't do the chords but i could play these licks and stuff they they would just come that i'm like well, it's just a matter of time. Getting, let's get in a band. And you don't. Re I wasn't thinking long. You know what was going to happen down there. I actually thought that making it would probably be playing your local um, cinema. You know, which is about what fifteen hundred people. And it's like, well, that's it. And you never think on a global. Back then, I didn't think on a global kind of Japan. And you're going to be playing states and you know stadiums and all this stuff, festivals. You didn't, you didn't really think that. I, was, I just thought. I, I saw. Uriah Heep at the East Ham Granada and supporting him was um, Peter Frampton before the uh, Comes Alive. He was doing the Comes Alive set and this is East Ham Granada and it was about 1,500 people and it was like, wow, this is making it. And, and obviously, you know, that album and Frampton went on to be, you know, this thing and years later, you know, we actually toured with, with Uriah Heep. They, they opened for us in, you know, in Def Leppard. And that, that was great because you'd swap stories and it was like, oh my God, you know, I used to love you guys. I still do, you know, it's, it was that. So it was, it was you, you, I just didn't know what was happening. It kind of happened really fast. Now you, your band Girl got a record deal, record contract. Yeah. Now, how did that happen? And how old were you when that happened? Um, I was 21 when I joined that band. I, I was still had my day job. I was, um, 
a dispatch rider in London. I'd done it for three years. I, I, it was a typesetting, like a print company. Obviously, you can do all this stuff on your phone now, but back then they used to have to do print proofs, and I have to whiz across London on a, on a 250 Suzuki, you know, you're in <laughs> snow, rain, ice, everything. And it was great. It, that was really cool. When I was, I was in a band, and we finally got a record deal. And um, what had happened, we, we'd done a... We done a video. Um, we got there was a a gay porn studio in in Muswell Hill, and they let us have this studio. Cheap. They they had all the stuff set up for filming, and we're like, great, we can we can you know film the band. And then our singer Phil Lewis um, was going out with Britt Eklund, the, the the actress. And this is really quite over the top for a band that's like never done a gig. You know, you know, he was pretty boy. The whole band had this pretty boy thing, so it just attracted women you know and um we got a deal and and then it, it just went from there really at a, at a knock but we'd, we'd never i'd played gigs before but the, the band had never never done a show before now explain how you ended up in Def leopard because as i said i saw them i still remember it was the wango tango tour the album after i saw Def leopard i rode my bike to the record store, which people there used to thing called record stores, and you used to drive your ride your bike and not tell your parents. Yeah. And I bought on through the night, the uh, wow. the album, and that's when it turned me on to them. And I still remember that. And now, were you were you aware of Def Leppard, early Def Leppard, or when did you start becoming aware of them? Oh, straight off the bat, because um, when girls started touring, we were playing all the same clubs and pubs. You know, it, England at that point in time, sure, actually everywhere. There was bars and clubs and pubs and, and you'd play and there was this whole circuit and there was um post-punk music. Uh, punk really opened it up for, for a lot of, you know, it was either these stadium or arena rock, theater rock bands, but punk kind of opened it up and it, it brought it really at street level and you had all these pubs. So they're all open. And then there was a little insurgence of, of kind of rock bands, you know, post the punk period. So we'd all play the same places. So I'd see Def Leppard posters and, the police actually they they same deal you know you'd see they'd be playing a little the rochester castle in dalston high street you know stoke newington and uh it, all, all of these things and, and i become aware of, of leopard and then i heard and i thought well they're cool they sound different to, to these other bands they had a bit more kind of uh, the songs were more developed there was some harmonies there was there was there was something going on you know and then finally met the guys while i was on tour in, in girl they, they come to one of our shows and we went to see them and it was reciprocal and I, I remember the first night I met Joe and Steve and that you know we, we went to a club after our Def Leppard show and um, we jammed at a bar and it was just late and drunk and everything and Joe goes you want to sleep in the spare room and we're like yeah great and that's really what started the friendship off really. Now how did they decide to, to have you join the band was it an audition process did you have a few guys or did they say they knew you they liked you and they said if you if you got the chops you're in i i was they obviously we'd play together so we'd, we'd when we'd done this a few times we'd jam whenever we got the occasion and, and i'd see him on stage um they were opening up for ozzy osbourne in the states and joe called me he said it's really not going great with pete willis the, the other guitar player there's a there's this drinking thing and it's, it's spilling over onto this live stage. And it's, it's, it's really, could you learn 16 songs in two days? I'm like, yeah, sure. And he phones back four days later and he said, we, we've smoothed out. It's actually okay. And I said, all right, that's fine. But, you know, if you want me to help out, great. The next year I get um, a phone call. Joe's like, oh, it's gone. Pete's gone again. Do you want to come and help out on the album? We're doing this new album. Do you want to come and play like guitar solos? And I went in and, Met Mutt Langer, who I'd already met before because I'd seen him on their last album. I met him on the, on the High and Dry album, Mutt Lang. And he said, Okay, uh, play a solo of this song, come back tomorrow, and here's a cassette and figure out. So I, I went in, a Stage Fright was the first one, and I played the solo. It was like a one take, and they're like, Whoa, this is great. And no one actually said, Well, you're in the band. He's like, Well, do you want to record some more? I said, Yeah, okay. Well, this one's called Photograph. So all the songs were written. And I'm playing all these solos, and then they found out, well, Mutt found out I could sing, so he had me sing all these backing vocals. And then I'm playing more solos, Rock to Your Drop, Falling, Rock of Ages, you know, and then adding stuff to it, guitars, and all, all the real fun stuff, all the heavy lifting had already been, and songwriting, and the, the, the grafting, you know, rhythm guitars had all been done. 
I just come like scraped lead guitar, you know, all of that. So it was totally fun. We we come out, the album gets released. It's all over American radio. We're still in in England. We're playing like half empty theaters where they'd close the top half, and we're just playing underneath. And it's like, yeah, this is great, and this is cool. Wow, wow, wow. We get to the states. We're opening up for Billy Squire. It exploded, and you know, you you see these stories about bands and that but it really did explode on a, and mtv had something to do with it you know it was um the same period as duran duran so it, it kind of fit in between being a rock band and the pop duran duran thing we we didn't look like other rock bands we didn't look like duran duran but it was it was young guys playing this you know acceptable palatable rock music that crossed over into pop and 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 that was it really and and we never stopped we uh, the first year we ha- ever had off was 2010. Other than that, we're from that point, 82, all the way up until that point, we were working all the time. Now, MTV, I just saw a documentary on MTV last night on A&E, and, uh, and I, was, I remember we had MTV early, and I remember watching it. And, you know, I try to explain to people how big MTV was breaking bands and they noticed last night that London was already advanced in the videos because top of the pops and stuff like that. I mean, when you said earlier, you know, MTV, everyone noticed you. I mean, was it right away that after people started, you guys got in the, in the circulation, you just, people just flocked to you. I mean, and how do you handle that as a young guy who, even though you said it's not overnight, it was still pretty quick. Yeah. Um, MTV was, a virgin as well it was it was new so you're you're and and it was really creative we've got to remember mtv made reality tv they they were there was the first reality tv show road rules or whatever that one that was and that kind of not had a knock-on effect to everything else american idol you know what you name your 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 thing so it was pretty um cool and hip it had, had a thing and it was still grinding a lot of towns they didn't actually have cable you could only get it on cable it was just music and it was like america's radio station only you could see the bands it was like wow you'd have you know michael jackson that'd be def Leppard, in excess police prince the go-go i mean all bang 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 and it was like wow this is it, it was a whole brand new musical medium and culture like kicking off and we were there in the inception and, and we were we were a hybrid in ourselves, you know, that, that was the thing. Mutt Langer, our producer, wanted to create a hybrid between rock and pop. I mean, he'd done it, you know, Shania Twain. I mean, he, he honestly made country music palatable for, you know, I'd hear it in Japanese elevators, and I'd never heard country music outside of America before. So he had this thing about making this hybrid, and, and MTV was the carrier for that. It actually just happened to be at that time that there's this kind of cutesy rock band, and they're playing real guitar rock riffs and, and they're singing but the guy's got a, a, a gruff voice he's, he's, they're a rock band but they've got this pop appeal and just looking back on it I did at the time I didn't even realize we, we didn't we just naturally done our thing um, but it, it it did explode and it was so exciting uh, more, more than it I don't you know I, no one got kind of well there was I mean, obviously Steve started drinking more and it ended in his death and I Something like that would have probably happened anyway. Obviously, Rick had his accident, and it, and that had a knock-on effect for other things. But during that time period, we, we were we were having a blast. We weren't very good. That's that's the other thing. You know, we thought we were really good. But I hear those live tapes back, and I'm like, oh god, that's, that's a bit cringy. And it wasn't until later that we really developed the vocal thing and actually sounded like we did on the record. We, we learned how to sing uh, again. Mutt Lang was was really you know kind of instrumental in that and then when vivian campbell joined the band he's got such a great voice and he said oh i do these vocal warm-ups and that took it to another level so there was constantly things evolving it's like mixed martial arts you know you yeah you, you start off as a you know a kung fu guy and then someone comes in beats your ass because he's a is a boxer or a wrestler you you kind of start blending all this stuff together so we were running on adrenaline excitement and 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 a, a, a little bit of talent as well and just being at the right time when this thing kind of exploded now as you're blowing up in the u.s how is your popularity in london because you know it's weird sometimes fans that always happens to canadian bands i don't know if you ever noticed that like canadian bands blow up in canada but they never translate to america right of course you guys became world 
famous international, you know, big, big, big band. But in the beginning, how was London accepting you or all of England? They sold out, man. These guys are sellouts. Here's <laughs> another thing. You know, you noticed, and I, I only figured this out a few years ago. We sing with an American accent. It's like, I, I don't speak like, like I sing. And what that is, it's not us going... Yeah, let's, let's let's trick those those Americans. Let's make them think that we're one of them. We're singing like American harmonies. Just, we learned from Mick Jagger, learned from Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, Chuck Berry, all of that stuff. You copy the stuff. They got American accents. Mick Jagger used to sound like I do. He speaking wise, he wouldn't say dance, dance, little sister, dance. He'd go dance like I do. I say, you know, it's a glass of water, you know, but. You learn this stuff. You pick this stuff up. And me, like years of Stevie Wonder, Rita Franklin, you know, even Mick Jagger, who sung with an American accent. After a while, you're singing like that. So we didn't really sell out. We, we're just doing that thing. We're, we're fans of, of this particular medium of, of music. And, and that's what we that's what we aspire to be. So, but anyway, in England, they, they, they thought we'd sold out and, you know, grumpy. They're like a good old moan, the English. You know, they complain about the weather and, and everything. So they get a good old complain about us. I personally didn't care. I'm like, you know, I I really don't care if we're successful. I said this before, you know, we went to Lithuania once. We played 7,000 seats, sold out, and they were all singing every word. I'm like, wow, we could just stay here. You, you know what I mean? It's like you, you go to where people like you, and, and in, in America they realize. So it, it caught on in, in England earlier on, but I think it was just just them moaning about it personally. Well, it's funny, you know, in America and the TV, I remember because Joe had the, uh, the the British flag yeah. shirt and yeah. everybody, like you would be walking down, the. I, I grew up in New Jersey, and you'd be walking down like the boardwalk and you'd see like like that and the, the shirts and it was back then was when people would buy stuff like that because MTV was such a, uh, as we said, was such a force. How, for you, how did the videos change over the years? Because I'm sure when they first started, they were lower. And then all of a sudden, hey, we're going to have David Fincher. We're going to have this guy. We're going to have anyone. And oh, by the way, the budget's $150,000 that you're paying for. I mean, so how did they change from your progress as you guys from when you first joined the band? And I guess that was photograph was a video, right? And yeah, two, yeah. And two down the road, like pour some sugar. I mean, how did it change for you guys? And did you like, did you like shooting videos? Not, not really. Some of them I did. Some of them were great fun. Like the Porsche Sugar on me video, we shot two. We done one in a house being condemned and, and knocked down. I remember thinking it didn't look international. And I went to, you know, a manager at the time, Peter Mench. I said, yes, this video doesn't really, doesn't look like the song sounds. We, we should, you know, when you see in excess or the police, they don't look like that. This, this kind of looks like what we are working class so you want to get this image of, of this international rock thing and it wasn't that so we redone it we done a live thing we we done a video in in 87 um at mcnichols arena in in colorado in denver and uh that was amazing and that that kind of looked like we sound and it was actually how we really looked. so that that exploded and that one it was the live video type thing and um i i that was fun that was always fun it it changed because it was kind of innocent earlier on. I know the label was trying to sell records and units and whatever, and you, this is a, a, an added thing. But when when it changed, when it became less of an art form and more of a business agenda, that's funny enough when, when people got turned off of MTV. They, they're like, eh. It, it lost its appeal. And, and, I, and the, the million-dollar videos, as great as some of them were, like the, the Aerosmith, what was the one that, um, it was a David Fincher one, I think. Janie's got a gun. I, I, I'm pretty sure that yeah. it was, wow, this is great. But I think you lost something when everyone's competing in that and it became about cutthroat business and less about the fun and the, you know, here's the go-go's, here they go, here's Billy Idol. It's like, it's, this is great. This is really cool. And people started turning off at, at, at that point. So it's, it's funny how public perceives that you know the, the the truth behind it it's, it's a weird one now when were you feeling you, you said it was down the road but when you were being lot you know doing all these shows in your younger part when you were still new somewhat to the guitarist 
Did you, were you practicing when you got off stage? Were you just going with it because, as you said, you guys thought you were really good and you might have not had the chops yet, which you did, but did you notice that at any point? Um, yes and no. Like when we'd record the albums, you know, that, that was that was hard. You know, Mutt Langer would get you to play this stuff that you, you wasn't actually capable of. You'd have to learn it and practice it. Same with the singing. You know, it's like, I can't sing that. He said, yeah, you can. You know, they'd really be encouraging. Um, and you'd come out with it. And there's levels of it. You know, if you, I'm below a level. I'm actually recording something over the last few days. I'm like, man, I can't play this. Because normally I'd be, I'm playing a lot more. So you're you're more with it. Um, there's an acceptable line, if you like, that you're, you're supposed to kind of be there or thereabouts. And, and sometimes it really disappears quickly. I, I've done this G3 tour um, two years ago with Joe Satriani, John Petrucci. The level of musicianship was so – I was practicing. I mean, my fingers were bleeding. They were raw. Just because every day I'd have to go on stage with these guys and we'd jam, and, and it was really inspiring. It was amazing. But it really upped my game. But to stay at a level that's that's kind of anywhere like that, you, you have to maintain it. Or, or if you take a little bit of time off, you've got to come back you know, full on. And, and that we, with Def Leppard, there's, there's always a line. You know, we, the, the singing is such an important part. And, we have to practice. We warm up every single day, and and we're not at the moment because you know we're, we're at home. But, uh, on tour, we actually do, and there's there's a level that you, a level of um, exceptional level that you have to maintain. Now, as a band in your early years, do you think the fact that you guys you were starting to get you're a lot of fame, and you didn't get rid of Rick Allen when the awful accident happened? Do you think that? made you tighter as a band as a tight knit unit because it really showed that you guys were in it together because a lot of you know a lot of bands would say oh screw this we're becoming famous you know the hell with that i mean what i mean first of all it's a wonderful thing to do but how do you think that meshed you more as a band i think we were already meshed i think otherwise we perhaps would have done something else yeah there was a it's, it's a gang it's 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 a it's a gang thing and i remember we were at a pub once in, in, in London and the Motorhead, fast Eddie Clark had left Motorhead and, and uh, Brian Robertson from Thin Lizzy had joined and, you know, he's a great player and everything. And, and someone said, yeah, so how's that with Robertson? And the guy goes, well, I don't like Motorhead. And they're like, well, why not? You know, Robertson, you know, Thin Lizzy, that's awesome. He said, well, it's not, it's not my gang anymore. So we were already our gang. So that, that was a, that we didn't even think about that. That's like, yeah, we, we're recording this album. We, we don't need to go on tour. And if we do, you know, we'll, we'll figure that out when we get there. It's, it's like, even when you record these tough songs, you know, like, it's like, hey, we're going to play this live. You don't worry about it at the time. You, you just worry about it uh, when you need to. So we, we was like that with Rick. It's like, you know, you take your time, figure out what you want to do, and, and we'll take it from there. So it, it wasn't even a thing, actually. Well, hysteria just blows up. I mean, it blows up. I mean, what? But there's like seven singles from that. I mean, as a musician, how do you grasp that? Because it's one of those things, you know. Like I'm a big, I'm a big baseball fan. So if a guy hits nine, he's up nine times in a row and gets nine hits. You know, if he screws up the tenth time, even though he should be very happy, he's going to be like pissed off. What was it yeah. like when you just when everything you were putting out was turning to gold? How do you? How do you keep your ego in check? Well, that one was really easy with, with, with Hysteria because we released the album in 87 and it tanked. We, we first single, we'd, we'd spent $5 million, which back is still a lot of money now, but it was back then it was a hell of a lot of money. And we had to break even and it went triple platinum, which is still huge. I mean, don't get me wrong, it went triple platinum, but we were still hugely in debt. And the third single kind of, it went women hysteria of women animal hysteria in the states and we hadn't made the money back and it all kind of was like disappearing we're like oh my god we're not we're not it, it was real a real drag you know we just spent two and a half years spent all this money all this time and effort went to europe touring over there meanwhile this song starts getting played in strip clubs pour some sugar on me it's um a stripper anthem in florida they're requesting it on the radio it becomes this hot thing around, you know, Miami and different areas in Florida. And everyone's going, wow, what's this? This is great. What is this? Oh, this is the new Def Leppard. And, 
you know, album had come out, album had gone, album had gone away. That comes out, album comes back out, goes to number one, single, you know, number two on, on the Billboard charts. Everything exploded and that from that point on. So the ego was already, we'd been kicked and bruised from, from <laughs> the loss of the money and, and all this time and effort. We were like very humble at that point. So all the stuff that came afterwards, you know, that ended up going 13 times platinum or something. Um, it, we were very humble with that. We were like, thank you. You know, we, and we felt we deserved it, but we wasn't kind of uh, overdoing that thing. We were still very, very humble. You know, Rick had had the accident. It was like, ooh, we, we, we're, we're getting through by the skin of our teeth here. And, and now we've been given a reprieve, a second chance. You know, you've been on death row and they go, okay, yeah, we'll let you out, actually. And it was that. And we're like, oh, great. So so we respected it. And all the way through that tour, it was, was humble, you know, appreciation. Now, as you get bigger, you know, as a performer, you know, when you start playing stadiums, it's quite different. Even if you play, you know, 20,000 people, playing 50,000 people is still a lot more. And we all know when you're outdoors, music usually rises up. How do you, how would you adjust? Because it seemed like it happened very quickly. How do you adjust to playing those big audiences? Not now, because you've been playing for a long time. But what was it like? Were you ever terrified? Like, did you ever get on stage and go, holy shit, um, I don't know what I'm going to do? Only when I stopped drinking. My first few shows, um, which was in 87, it was like just prior to Hysteria. So we played Hammersmith Odeon, which is about three and a half thousand. It's a, it's a really famous venue. But I remember going out there, not having alcohol in my system. Not that I'd be drunk, but I'd, I would, I'd be like, wow, it, it feels different. And I was a little, little shaken up. I got over that. Obviously, you go on tour and it's like the, the album tour, you know, got successful and everything. And it was, it was a different thing. But I think I have an avatar. I think that the on stage persona is very different to me and. If I'm playing and singing, I'm in total good shape and everything. I have an avatar and it doesn't even bother me. I actually done a, this is really ridiculous, but I done this little experiment because I thought, wow, that, my, my heart doesn't even beat faster. And I thought, well, let's see. So we had three months off. Then we done Rock in Rio and it, it's like 95,000 people. And I thought, just see what happens when you go, just check your pulse. And I actually checked my pulse. I was just, just feeling it. As I walked out, and then boom, when the lights go out, and it's like 95,000 people there. I just went out there, nothing. It didn't budge. It was like, wow. And I, I was like, okay, well, that, that confirms it. So this isn't me at all. It's an avatar. It's almost like a, a theatrical version. It's like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm not really king whatever. You know, I'm, I'm actually playing that part. And I, th I think that's really good for, for a performer. I mean, obviously when you get on recording and on, you know, off stage and stuff like that, it's a different thing. Or if you're playing music, you're jamming, you, you, you're doing something else. But for most part, I, I, I go to a different place. Now explain the two guitar lead guitar concept, because it's one of those things you have to give and take. And I know you were very close with Steve and you're probably very close to Vivian now. But what is that like when you join a band and they go, oh, yeah, you're lead, you're lead guitarist, but, oh, by the way, we have another lead guitarist too, so work it out. So when you hear a Queen album, you know, even earlier on, there's only Brian May, but there's like 50 guitars going off and their lead, their rhythm, their counter melodies, their God knows what. We took that to a stage further. So you, you've got two guys able to do that. So even on some of these songs, I'll give you a great example, Love Bites which we'd recorded, never recorded as a band. It's all separate. And it's like, you know, I'd do the bridge part one month. And like the next year, I'd be playing the chorus or the lead part or whatever. So you'd you'd have all these different things. Album comes out, single comes out. It goes to number one on the Billboard charts. And, and we've never played it as a band. And we're a little bit scared of it because there's loads of vocals and there's these guitar parts. And then we had to take two days off up in Canada. I remember Vancouver, we went to a rehearsal room, we're like, shit, we've got to do this song. We've got to, we've got to learn how to play this and sing it, sing the parts. So you make uh, hybrids, composites of the most uh, obvious parts. And you do that with the vocals as well. Sometimes you have to change it. I can't do that harmony. I can't hit that note. I'll change that. I'll go to another harmony on that part. 
I'll play this counterman. Steve, if you can do that, I can't sing and play that. Okay, so we, we, we do that. That's what it was like with the, the twin lead guitar thing. It's, it's very different. Like the Allman Brothers have a, have a totally, you know, back in the day, you know, Dwayne Allman and Dickie Betts. That was a different thing, you know. And, and same, Thin Lizzy or, or two guitar, lead guitar, they have, they have a thing. But we were, were, were getting different parts. We were like going, like an orchestra, you know what I mean? Steve would go, guitar orchestration. It's like harmony chords and counter melodies, cannoning off of them, going around the vocal. Quote um, Keith Richards, weaving sonic tapestries. That's what he used to call it. And I totally get it. So in a lot of rock bands, it's, it's, it's a lot, it's more mindless. It's like, oh, the guy plays rhythm and then he plays lead. This wasn't like that. You just kind of do, you know, if you if you get a really cool funk band and, and or any other, you know, jazz or something, they weave in and out of each other. And, and that's that's really what what we ended up doing. So our two guitar, lead guitar thing was very different to a lot of other bands. Now, because you were two guitars and you were close, how did Steve's death affect you? I mean, I heard you may you, you thought about leaving the band or I don't know if that's true, but how did it affect you? Because that's your brother. You guys are like right. partners. I mean, how does that affect someone? And you would the band had also gone through tragedy with uh, Rick. I mean, how does that affect yeah. you? As how does it, especially how did it affect your sobriety? Because right. it's something that it's it's like holy shit. Yeah. Well, the first thing I stopped and Steve carried on, and we were trying to get Steve was in and out of rehab. And we'd sit down. I remember we sat down for like six hours at a bar. I'm drinking Perrier. And we're talking about this issue. He's like, man, I really want, I really want, I hate this. And we're trying to figure out all these different ways. And yeah, rehab's one thing. But then what you got to do? Now, you know, go to art galleries, da-da-da-da, do some art, do crossword puzzle, whatever. You know, let's get more involved in guitar. Whatever it is, whatever it takes. And, and he, he really tried hard. And the, the phone call I got from Cliff Bernstein, you know, uh, uh, then manager him and Peter Mensch, I'd kind of expected. I, I actually had dreamt that. I know it sounds weird, but I'd expected that phone call from him. So, so when it came, I was like, it was devastating. But I, I wasn't shocked because it was like a a dream premonition. What and you know, when when someone's constantly like that, you know. I'd get calls. My friends in London say, well, Steve's at our house. I, we found him in Kensington High Street and we, we took him home. And I know, and I go, wow, this is an old friend of an old girlfriend. And they just found him, you know, and it was like, man. So you knew that something else was going to happen. So, because it, it, this thing, it was constant. So not that it eased it at all, but it, it just knowing it, 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 wasn't a, it wasn't a shock. It took the shock value part of it out, and it just made me more steadfast on the on the not drinking alcohol. I thought, wow, that was that was a really good thing to do on my part. Stop when I did because <clears throat> I just saw that as being a result. What happened to Steve? I actually saw that as, as being a result for me as well. If I didn't go, okay, you got to stop now. Now, but why did you actually consider leaving the band? Was it just because it was a heavy workload, or what happened? No, no, I, it was that gang thing again. It's like, well, the gang's gone, you know, a, a family member's gone. Ed, you still carry on like that. And Joe's like, well, we've recorded all these songs and he wrote some of them and you're, you know, what, what we, we have to do that. And he's, he's absolutely right. And we did, we finished the album, which was Adrenalized. I'd done all the guitars um, and, and we'd written some of the stuff. I was learning his parts from, from listening to the demos. And, um, and that was weird. That was you know, there's a ghost, right? It's Steve's ghost. There, here he is. He's, he's, so that that was bizarre. And then I, I just done all the parts. We went on tour and, and just carried on, you know. But uh, the, the, yeah, it was, it was the gang thing. It was the, the fact that one of the gang members was there and it just seemed a bit, initially, it, it just seemed it, it wasn't right. So a year, we waited a year and then we didn't audition people. We, we hung out with five different people that, that we chose. We actually contacted them and said, you know, hang out and set for jam da, 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 da. and it was great and, it, and anyone then was was good but Viv had, had something else plus he could sing like better than everyone else and that was that was one of the main things you know we wanted someone who could was it weird the first night that you were on guys were on stage with Viv to a big crowd that it was it sort of one of those things you're like okay this is a not to say changing of the guard but we're never going back to where we were I mean was it something that 
did it stay with you at all when you went up? Like said, but like, holy shit, you know, Steve's not here. So uh, interesting thing happened, and, and being stone cold sober, I remember these moments. They're, they're very vivid. We played a little club in Dublin called McGonigal's, um, because we had a warm up. We were doing the Freddie Mercury um, tribute concert at Wembley Stadium with, with David Bowie, Elton John, Metallica, you know, Guns and Roses. Everyone was on this thing. So and Queen and just just everyone, all the you know the remaining members of Queen. So we we played this thing, and I remember think, thinking, oh, this is kind of weird. Steve's not there, and, and we're playing. We're playing the first song, and I just looked over and I, I thought, okay, well, Viv's there, and we and we sound really good. And then it was like, and that was it. It was just natural from that point on. It was like I I didn't have to worry, and and I I wasn't going, oh, this is a real drag. I don't want to play with this guy. It wasn't that. It, this this guy's giving all he can he's, he's like giving his all and and he's doing it for the band so it was it was the right thing do you know what i mean and it, it kind of um it just it was a relief for me i looked over and said there's viv he's he's killing it this is this is perfect and, and we're a band oh my god we sound great oh here we go and and onwards and upwards that, that's really what it was like now do you remember when you first joined the band do you remember the first time you heard yourself playing with Def leopard on the radio yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, it was photograph, and and there, there were, and I, I just was still thinking how great this record sounded, how, how the the harmonies and and the, the hybrid, and excluding us, I was going, well, it's got these harmonies. That, that kind of sounds like Boston, but the band kind of sounds like you know ACDC's got this thing, and then the guitar. Oh my god, they sound. I've never heard guitars like that. And it's like, wow, that's us. So it was it was a little bit a little bit weird because it just sounded so amazing we, and it was a sound that we had to aspire to be live you know doing it in the studio is one thing but actually playing it is another thing so there was there was still something magical about it and not just the fact that well there's me listen to that how great do i sound it was like this is us and and we're in a, a, another dimension it's actually coming out the radio this is this is awesome now what what in your whole career and in with Def Leppard and you've done solo stuff, how have you developed as a writer over the years? Because I know you, you do some songwriting, you've written a lot of older stuff. What was your what was your key, what was your role in the early days with Def Leppard? And then now I think it's probably grown. And how have you grown as a writer? Um, well, when I joined, like I said, I'm, I'm playing on a bunch of songs that I didn't write, so that that was a whole new experience for me. It's like didn't write any of this stuff. I'm just playing the solos and just lead guitar and power chords and all the all this stuff. The next album, I had a very different writing style. I was, I was like I said, you know, it was Motown. It was punk music. It was reggae. It was jazz. It was metal. It was really extreme stuff, that, and I liked all of it. Uh, my favorite band was The Police. I I, I like the fact that they were um, they were this hybrid. And again, you know, they they took pop. They took this jamaican reggae put it in a, a new wave package looked a certain way and and they had this really prolific amazing songwriter in sting who, who would write these pop songs where, where really he was way more evolved you know he writes some stuff and they come over as being pompous and that but other stuff he's he's just a great writer and and you put that in the context of, of a, a rock reggae band and it and it had this thing so I had all these new elements to bring. So when I started writing on Hysteria, what was amazing about it, Mark Langer said, look, we can't do Pyromania Part 2, a rock album, because everyone is making that album. Everyone's copying the snare sound. Everyone's doing trying to do the guitars, the harmonies. They're doing gratuitous stuff. So we have to bring these different influences. And I'm like, great. Well, I love Prince. I love The Police. Let's kind of inject parts of that in there. And we did. We... Um, we had all these different elements. That's why at the time it sounded very different to anything else out there. And and from that point on, I, I just kind of developed. I, I still, you know, I've, and we signed with Sony Publishing and um, Brian Monaco is, is, is this guy, is, is the president there. And he's very inspiring and he's been really great at, at just actually getting me to write more. And, and so that really fits in wonderfully with, with what I'm doing because it actually improves. I've been writing with some other guys and everything and it just improves the, the, the thing, you know, especially if you're 
there's a humble approach to it. You're like, you're, you're trying to learn what's coming in. You, you kind of ingest everything. So um, that and the, the way that, you know, the, the band's been working, you know, again, Mike Kobayashi, our manager's like kind of doing, got us doing all these different things. And since we got in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and everything, it kind of exploded a little bit fr- from then. So everything, you know, it's, it's, you just improve all the time. And I'm, I'm aware of it. I'm actually aware of, of that, um, that growth, if you like. What's it like when you find out you're going into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? And the one good thing also about it is you did get strong crowd support. You know, I know people can vote. What is that like? Is that is that something that, you know, when you guys, you know, because you were, you were through your careers, did you ever aspire for that? Or are you just like, eh, if it happens, it happens. And then when it happened, you're like, holy crap, it happened. We were that. We were like, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. Because it's a little bit like... The electoral college—it's like not a, a, a real voting thing. It's not not really done on that. It's, it's a board, and and it's a board of older guys that want to be a bit hip. So that's why they have these. Some of these bands have been going over the years. And you guys, that's a that's a weird choice, and it's strange that we're not in there. But whatever, we don't really care. I swear to God, our fans—I I would get people in tears going. Why aren't you guys in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? <laughs> really? You know, it's not right. We vote every time. And it's not really about that. It's a panel. So a few years ago, they started including a vote. And I, I want to say the vote counts as like 1% or 10% of the overall thing. But it still has a, a bearing on it. We had the most overwhelming support from our fans that they've ever had for any artist. So that says a lot for me. But it also... The, the people going, they, they didn't want to appear uncool. So they, well, we have to take notice of these fan votes, the, of these fan votes. And so that got us in. I, that felt really good. And it was really good to get the game with uh, Brian May. And it had a real effect on our career. Just all, all of a sudden, and this is really weird, I, even after, you know, going 13 times platinum, at selling 100 million albums, Still, it elevated us to another level, without a doubt, because people react to you differently now that you're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So it, it does mean something. But uh, the, the process, I think, was, was the thing that, especially me and Joe, we weren't really big fans of. We thought it, it was unfair that, that the Doobie Brothers only just got in. They, they should have been in. Their Kiss should have been in years ago. Rush should have been in. You know, they're... Do you know what I'm saying? I started an argument. I made a comment on Facebook a while ago, and I just said, and, and nothing against, I said, Whitney Houston has an amazing voice, but I yeah. don't know why she's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and people are, you know, people are on social media, oh, yeah, well, this, and I'm like, hey, guys, I'm not saying she's, ta- she, she was talented, but it's not rock and roll. It's not, right. you know, so, yeah. So now, now you talked about your fans. Why your fans adore you? I always think that if I meet if I met someone over thirty five who never <laughs> heard of Def Leppard, I'd throw them out of my house. I'd be like, you know, everyone knows and everyone knows the logo. It's one of those logos like Kiss. Everyone knows it. Why do you think your fans your fans seem to be just they just still they love you? And, and in this in this day and age, people start getting tired now because we have such short attention spans. What do you think that makes your fans just adore you guys? We have an integrity that a lot of bands don't have. I mean, we've stuck. I mean, everyone, everyone goes, yeah, you, you stuck with Rick Allen. We've lost so much money in trying to create this product, art, or whatever you want to call it, albums for our fans. You know, it's like, that's not a good business move. If um, We've done stuff before and they're going, really? You're spending this mon- much money? We had these T-shirts. Not yet, you know, made up. Don't ask. The album's not ready yet and all of this stuff. Um there's an integrity there. There's, you know, when when grunge come out, and I, I thought that was a welcome. When I first heard Nirvana, I thought oh, about time. This is like first time I heard the Sex Pistols in England. It, it's kind of a, a cultural, social kind of, you know, impact it's had on on everything, and it, this really needs to change. But you know, we fell in in the the void of all those other bands around. So we'd be playing really quarter and yeah, quarter full arenas and it was like uh, getting smaller and smaller we carried on so there was a, again integrity we thought we're, we're gonna get there it's gonna be great we're gonna have another hit we're gonna keep writing we're gonna keep recording and we did and i think that fans noticed that 
they, they notice, especially if you're crawling on your knees and you come back. I, it just is an analogy. Andre Agassi, when he was a, he was the number one tennis guy and everything, he faded and he had to get pickup games to start getting seeded again. And he'd be playing like on on a, a block, you know, and he'd get 235th seed and he'd, you know, <laughs> swipe his way back up there and he got back in top 10. It's like, well, then he became the number one seed again. And I, I was like, wow, I, I was so impressed. It was like, and everyone's going, that's real integrity. He loves what he's doing and he proved it. So I, I think there was there was something a little bit like that with our fans. Like they, they, they noticed that. They noticed the, the stuff. They noticed the, the journey. The I don't want to say struggle. There's, there's a struggle um, uh, professionally and, and stuff like that. It's, it's a lot less to what people go through. Again, you know, Rick, Rick's thing. That that was that was a real struggle for, to to go through something like that. And we meet people all the time who, who go through real struggle. So professionally, we have struggled. We've we've gone through these things, and and as a band, people. They appreciate that, and, and hence our, our fans are, are, are crazy loyal. Now, as you record and you go on with your career, you've been in a business for so long. How has the business changed? You know, I, I get I get some people are very. I talk to some musicians who love the fact that anyone can record something now and put it on YouTube and get a million hits. I hear people who hate that shit because it's the, no one. No one, as we used to say, no one's getting their chops anymore. You know, you get your. You don't have to prove your chops. You can drop a video, not like a video like you guys did, but just a video of someone just playing a kazoo and belching, and it will get millions of hits. How has the industry changed for you? And do you see, are you still glad to be part of it? We've always rolled with the technology. I mean, we, we came out, it was vinyl and, then, and cassettes. When we were recording Hysteria, Mutt Lang said, well, we got this album 63 minutes. And, and everyone's going, well, we can't, it's going to cost so much, put it on vinyl. He said, well, I, I don't think we should worry. I think this CD thing's going to catch on. And everyone's like, oh, really? I, I don't know about this. And it exploded. And he, he was right. And we had 63 minutes. And, and people bought it on different formats, which actually helped with the sales. You'd have vinyl, cassette, and CD sales. Um, <clears throat> so you roll with the technology. You know, we, we used to record on two-inch analog tape, which was so exciting. Like, going into a recording studio was so exciting. It was so time-consuming. It was so expensive. And as great as it was, there's part of me that goes, I love the fact that I can sing something on my phone, come back and record it straight into my Mac, and it sounds as good as something I did in the studio, only I haven't got to set up my gear get a producer, get an engineer. I can just do it myself. And and we've been writing a lot of songs like that. And I've been doing that for years with, with that kind of set. I plug a different guitar in uh, and you do that. So, and you can go, okay, I kind of want to have this kind of African drum rhythm going off as a loop. And I can just pull the loop up and just play along to it. And it's like, it's magic. It's black magic what's happening with this technology. So, I applaud that. I, I love that. And like I said, I, I really appreciated all the stuff. I love coming from the fact that, that we did work on in studios and we had these stories that were, you know, like old Queen um, stories when they'd be recording and the tapes would go thin because you'd gone through it so many times and you got to get this performance or it's not going to work. There's such a romantic thing about that era. And I'm so glad to be part of it. You know, I went to the Motown house in, in Detroit and, very Gordy's place magical you actually walk in there and the sound of it you just talk and you go like that and you go wow this is this is magical and I'm glad to be part of that but I love where it's gone and I, I think that just because um a lot of people try and get a shortcut they, they don't want to put that hard work in and I think that with every technology you still got to put more in in other areas you know a vocal thing we really have to rehearse. We have to warm up every day. We do half hour to an hour before we go on stage. Otherwise, you can't you can't hit that stuff, or you, your voice will start going by the end of the week, and and then you're playing catch up. So all of these things are really important, and I think a lot of people do use it as an excuse because they're not prepared to put that work in. So that that's what I get from a lot of people. They go, oh yeah, you just put it on TikTok and you're good to go. It's like, no, you just use, if you can, use it as a, as a thing. But 
you, you do have to put your, the work in as well. You have to kind of work your craft. Now, how are you holding up with this whole pandemic? Because I know you guys had that huge tour and you were going to come to Citizens. I live right near Philadelphia. You're going to come to Citizens Bank. And, you know, I talk to, when I talk to actors, they're actually, they're enjoying the time off because they've been on set so much of their life or, you know, they've, it's always that grind of auditioning. And I talk to musicians and a lot of musicians are really missing it because it's such a part of their life. And it's the way bands make more money these days is touring. But how are you adjusting to not, I mean, because you've toured for so many years. What's it like for you? Do you, did the first week were you like, holy shit, what am I going to do? Well, the first, the big bummer is that we announced our biggest tour of our career, without a doubt. You know, it's just us, Motley, Poison, and Joan Jett. We put these tickets on sale. Ten stadiums sold out before before they went on sale to the public. This was just online stuff. So we're going, we've never had this. You know, hysteria, whatever. This is like, wow, this is great. The pandemic hits and you go, wow, what a bummer. Oh, my God. But, you know, you, you don't. There's a great phrase. I won't say it, but it's, cause it's kind of rude. But anyway, there's a... I, I thought, well, then we'll record. We'll write and record. I am so enjoying not jumping on a plane every five minutes. My, my big drag is that, you know, I have five kids. I, I have two in California and, and I have three girls on the, on the East Coast. And I usually go and see them. I'm usually flying out. One's in Virginia and the other two in South Carolina. So we Skype every day. That's that's not the point. I, I really miss that. I don't miss the, air, the airports, I've got to say. So there's part of it, and I've got a, a two-year-old boy here, so we go swimming, and he goes running every day, and he's, it's, it's awesome. Um, it's really nice to have a break. I, I go along with the actors there. It's like you spend so much time doing this stuff. Um, and I do the other stuff as well. I'm, I'm like experimenting with dieting. I'm doing all these different workout things. It's a, it's a good time to do that. And I did spend a, a month of just eating junk food, which was awesome. You know, I'm a vegan, so it was vegan junk food, but still, you know, coconut ice cream and yeah, chips galore, these different, yeah, it was great. But, and then put on 13 pounds and then I had to chip away at getting it back again. So now when will you be, when will you mentally be prepared to play again? Like if someone said, Hey, you know what? We're going to do Def Leppard at a stadium you know, socially distanced, so people are six feet apart. When will you feel safe? And do you think it's a responsibility that if you go perform, you don't want your fans to get sick? I mean, what? How does how does the artist think about that? So, you look at other countries. You, you, you look at the infection rate. That's what I do, and, and I look at it in other countries. And like New Zealand is is amazing. Obviously, what they did there. Ireland. I know these are two islands. They're, they're, they're smaller places and they can contain it. But um, I've got a friend, his business partner actually went out to pandemic and worked in this, it wasn't a factory, but it was kind of it was a, a shop floor. Is it? No, they didn't close down, but everyone wore masks. So everyone said, okay, so that we can get this licked, unbeaten, let's let's do this. You can't come into work if you haven't got a mask. So they all did. No one caught COVID. And they, they had a pretty, it was going, they, they locked it down. But this place didn't lock down. They carried on during the pandemic. In other countries, they've got it got it going forward. Um, I, I, was, I was saying about South Korea, you know, and they, they took it a lot seriously and they were able to, to get going again. And as they did in New Zealand, they had... Um, I think they had a rugby thing. They had a, like a, a stadium just a, a little while ago in, in New Zealand. And, and I've got some friends in Canada and other places. And I'm kind of jealous when I talk to them. Like, oh, yeah, we was in Paris last week. I'm like, wow, really? It's, it's like it, it's like that. So they, they take it. So it just really depends on that. So I'm, I'm good to go. So whenever. Do you, so you feel confident uh, not worrying about getting sick? You just feel that we're brought to the point now? Or a lot of people are saying they're going to wait for a vaccine before they go to a show. I miss concerts. I, I go to concerts all the time, and, and it sucks. Yeah. And a lot of us are going, uh, you know, that's the one thing we miss. You know, I can watch sports without an audience. That's okay. I'm actually enjoying it. And I don't, but a concert is something you miss. I mean, you, I mean, you probably won't be subject to getting ill because you're on stage, you're away from people, and it won't be that bad. No, I think it has to be a general thing. Everyone has to be in this together, I think. So it's, um, I think it's going to be different in different countries. 
I really do. I think that there's going to, uh, some European countries are going to be able to open up soon. Now, obviously, like I said, the New Zealand thing, they, they were up and running already. Um, it just, just seemed, it's, it's contained, it's increments as well. It's like vaccines, one thing, a safe vaccine, something else. Then there's, you know, preconditioning uh, edition, uh, conditions and all of those things. You've got to play everything into play, you know. And look look what happened with, with the last pandemic, you know, 100 years ago. Uh, uh, that kind of... We haven't even hit what they did. Their, their part two was way worse than the first one because of it, it coming in flu season. It was, it was, I think it was a similar time period. And, um, yeah. I have a few more just of questions I'll get you out of here. Uh, first of all, the... When did you start not wearing a shirt on stage? Because that's like a trademark. Everyone knows Phil Collins without the shirt. And, you know, what what, did, what made you decide to do that? I used to, I shave now, but I used to have really like monkey hair on my on my <laughs> chest. And it was kind of gross and it'd get all sweaty and funky. And, and so if I wore a shirt, it would stick to me. And this is in the 80s, I think, even on, yeah, Hysteria Tour. Actually, even Pyromania Tour, my, my first tour i actually wouldn't wear a shirt or, or, or very rarely so that just become a thing and then later on when i started getting into shape like getting into real shape it was like well this kind of looks cool like kind of look like again like the avatar that i they send out on, on stage in my on my behalf i, I kind of look like that and so that was that was kind of cool because it gives you confidence is it is it sort of harder to play guitar when you you know you show some pictures when you bulk up, you had mentioned you bulk up on tour. Does that make it a little harder for you to to jam when you have a little bit of extra muscle? Because it's just the whole motion. I think would change. Um, no, no, it's, it's the same thing. I think there's a um, there's a confidence thing, and there's different there's different there's performers and there's musicians. I'm always saying there's a huge difference between an artist and a musician. You can be an artist who's a musician, but that doesn't always work the other way around. And, and a performer is something else as well. You know, you have some people who just perform and there's a, a, a visual image thing that goes along with that. So you've got the artist, you've got a performer and you've got a musician and you can have all three, but they don't always go together. Like, like a, you know, you said that, that a lot of musicians uh, that you said they're, they're missing touring. I miss touring, but because I'm an artist, I consider myself an artist. I can actually go in there and, and get my fix, get my kind of blow my skirt by you know, writing songs and, and, and perform, that, doing that way. Obviously, the, the performance part of it, um, I do miss that. But that's something, again, I have to get in shape for that. I have to go, okay, if I'm going to be this performer and, and work on that avatar, I, I kind of have to put in this other work beforehand. So it, it all c- connects and it all kind of blends in together once you get out on tour, for, for me anyway. But I, I do... I like being off because I'm, I'm I'm actually still kind of exercising um, that 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 thing. I'm still getting my, my kicks off of, of, of doing doing you know recording and writing as well. So I'm I'm all okay. I'm actually not kind of jonesing so bad that I I have to get out and, and perform. But, but I'll be I am looking forward to that. But again, that's a whole different kind of preparation thing. One final question: What is the future of Def Leppard? What where do you guys see? How long are you guys going to play till? Are you really going to sit there and go, you know what, we, we have to start recording new songs? Because you have such a vast catalog that when, unfortunately, people, they go to a concert, they don't want to hear anything new. They're like, right. you know, I mean, I said you had seven hits off one album. It's like, that's that's half a show. You know what I mean? What Absolutely. Is, what is your guys' future and what, what direction would you like the band to go in? I love the, again, going back to this artist thing, there's, there's a thing in that you, you have to go, we have to keep writing. It's the lifeblood. Otherwise, you feel like you're ripping people off. And we feel like we're not, we're ripping ourselves off. It's like, no, we have to keep writing music. Me and Joe are on the phone, and we've been writing. We've been doing a lot of writing together re- recently. And it's been really great. Actually, we've just kind of got on this groove, and it's like, wow, this is really cool. Just speaking to Sav, just a second. Now, we're we're really kind of connected on on that level, and I I love that. I love that artistic kind of um, collaboration thing that we've got going at the moment. It's it's really cool, and, and like I said, it, it kind of scratches that itch you have for it. There, like I said, there's so many different elements. There's the performance part. There's the show. There's the big lights, and I'm really looking forward to that. 
but it's the lifeblood to create new music. When you see the Stones, you know, you go out and you, they go, they do a new song. They always put a new song out and it's like, or when they play that or when Keith sings a song, everyone goes to the bar or buys T-shirts because you want to hear Brown Sugar and Jumping Jack Flash and Satisfaction. You want you want to do that. So we have a bit that we're not, we're not daft. We actually realise that people don't even give a shit about anything new. But we do. We actually go, okay, let's try and incorporate this because we're really proud of it and we want to get this out there. So we, we'll say, we'll put Let's Go was, was a song off the last album. No one wants to hear it. So we're going to make a real spectacular splash. We're going to do the first song, but they have lasers and lights and moving parts. And we're going to be running around the stage. And everyone's going to be going, whoa, whoa, whoa. So you get away with it. And so so we're very aware of that. But again, you know, I think it keeps the, the band, the integrity thing again. It's like us. This is what we do. We write songs. We record. We've always done that. And we perform. And, and we, we're putting the best into it for everyone else. The integrity we have you get back off your fans, like I was saying before, they, they, they notice that. And, and it, it's really cool. And, and yeah, we, we, we agree that they, they want to rather hear pour some sugar, but we're going to do that anyway, you know? Uh, yeah, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to you. As I said, I've, I've been a fan. I mean, I, I still, I mean, from before you were even in the band, I, I saw you guys live. And it's just great because, you know, you, you get to talk to people and just you find them out your career. So do you do social media at all? Are you on out there to social media? I I mean, just the deaf levels. I used to be. I, and when we're on tour, I, I do an Instagram thing. I haven't actually been on there since the tour because I go like, oh, I'm in Rio. Look, look at this. This is me next to the, the Christ. And, you know, it's kind of more like a, a diary, like a visual diary. So it, I, I definitely will be doing some, some stuff like that. So there, there, there is the Instagram thing. And I got off of Facebook a few years ago. It got really kind of nasty and, and the comments and that. And it's like, that's just what they do. So I, I got off it. I just don't want to be. And when they start getting personal about my family or, or my kids or kind of, you know, I, I've, I have four biracial kids. And, and when, when people start getting weird, it's like, you know what? I'm, I've got no time for this. My kids are beautiful and wonderful and I love them more than anything. So, uh, yeah, it was time to not even be a part of that thing, you know. Well, cool. Well, people, go check out Def Leppard. If you haven't heard of Def Leppard, I don't know why you're listening to my show because I think everyone I know has heard of Def Leppard. Uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. My website is coopertalk.net. You can find over 800 episodes. Email me, email me cooper at coopertalk.net. And Instagram, coopertalk1. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time. That was 